0: Hi, this is Millie Long from University of North Carolina, one of the co-hosts of IBD Drive Time. And I'm here along with my good friend and colleague, Ray Cross, who helps to co-host this podcast. And we have an outstanding guest today, Dr. Barthi Kochar from Mass General, who's going to be speaking to us about one of her main topics of interest, which is IBD and older individuals. So Barthi, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here.
0: Well, this is a really important topic. You know, not only are we seeing new diagnoses and diagnoses in older individuals, but certainly our patients are living throughout their lives. And so there are a lot of things we need to address as gastroenterologists for our older patient population. So let me just start with a simple question. Can you describe IBD in older individuals? I mean, is it similar in terms of disease severity? Talk us through kind of older um, IBD.
1: That's a great question. And I'll start by saying, um, thank you for using the word older, um, because, you know, I think it's always important to kind of talk about who we're um, referring to when we, you know, discuss this. And so I like the word older because it talks about relative age. And so we're talking about a group of people in the IBD world who are maybe 60 and 65 years and older. So not really old or elderly or geriatric, but older than the traditionally discussed population in the field. This is, you know, one One of the big issues I do feel like uh, is that a lot of our literature about people 60 and 65 years and older are like talking about geriatric IBD or elderly IBD, and it doesn't really relate to the patients that we see in front of us. Back to your question. So um, IBD in older adults, I think traditionally was very much thought to burn out by um, an older age. And so it was thought that, you know, as you're, you have like thymic involution and immune senescence and things like that you just don't have as much of a chance of having like such severe inflammatory conditions. So across all of the inflammatory um, conditions, including in rheumatology and such, but more and more, um, you know, we know that you can have very robust inflammation at older ages, sort of simplistically, even though your number of immune cells decrease with age, their function could be more pro-inflammatory. And so there's a lot of research going on and try to figuring out who are these people who have more pro-inflammatory aging. So I think we all see, you know, patients in their 60s, but even their 80s and 90s who present with new severe disease. um, So including, you know, penetrating, fistulizing, Crohn's disease, severe ulcerative colitis that requires rescue therapy and colectomy. And there's also people who've aged with the disease and maybe they've had quiescent disease for 30 or 40 years and all of a sudden at an older age. So, you know, as young as 60, but even as old as like 80 or 90 have a really severe flare. So I think just like in young, younger adults, um, IBD and older adults can you know range the this gamut. And it's not something that we should uh, not be thinking about as a condition that could be serious at older ages.
0: No, I totally agree with you. I've seen some really severe IBD in my older patients. And I feel like sometimes we do them a disservice by, by kind of thinking in our heads, well, this is milder, you know, or maybe giving them steroids and not you know, escalating their underlying therapy. And so I think it's really important for us to recognize that, this, that this, these older epidemiological trends may not be um, applicable in today, uh, today's age. What do you think about you know in terms of treatment? When you're selecting treatments in older individuals with inflammatory bowel disease, what are, what are the main things you're considering?
1: That's a great question. I'd love to hear, you know, what both of you have to think as well. But I think one of the things that is one of my biggest pet peeves is we picked a treatment because it is the quote unquote safest option. And so, you know, what I always tell people is what's safest for the patient is effectively treating their IBD. So even if that sounds aggressive. And I I will say again, in air quotes, aggressive. Um, I don't think it's aggressive if that's the one strategy that is required to get them in a clinical, at least clinical remission, if not, you know, some of the more objective targets that we like to aim for in all of our patients. And so, you know, I think you just have to match their treatment to their disease. And so, you know, if you see kind of deep punched out ulcers in someone with terrible, terrible colitis, um, And you just want to put them on some misalamine uh, because it feels safer to you. And they're, you know, you're sort of thinking, well, they're 80 years old. You know, how bad can things get? I mean, I think things can get very bad. And we've all had the patient that's gone to a colectomy within a few months because we just didn't treat them up front aggressively enough. And I think the important thing to recognize is that older adults may have, you know, some older adults may have maybe less reserve to tolerate your trials of treatment. So it feels like it's really important. Important to get it right the first time that you're trying. And so, you know, I don't have a go-to drug for older people. And I will say that, you know, we we all know that older adults are underrepresented in clinical trials of IBD medications. And so it's not that we have a huge body of literature to turn to. Um, and it does involve a long risk-benefit conversation often, but it's worth having and, and worth being upfront with a good effective therapy.
0: Totally agree with you. Uh, and obviously, I do the same in my clinical practice. I thought one there was a nice study that Sid Singh did in his California IBD cohort recently that looked at kind of, in particular, Crohn's disease, comparative use of, you know, TNFs as compared to Ustikinimab as compared to vedolizumab, And I think in many instances, people may have been starting vedolizumab thinking, I, I want to start the safest drug. But in reality, with complications of Crohn's disease, they did much worse because of not as well controlling the Crohn's disease. So I think we need to match the drug patient to the drug, just as you mentioned. I want to ask one, one more question, which is that, you know, we're in the midst of this never ending COVID pandemic. Certainly it had been worse before, um, but it is still ongoing. Do you have any specific um, considerations given COVID in older individuals, either in regards to medication selection or uh, how does this influence your patterns of care?
1: I think that's a great question, um, and it's certainly a question patients ask all the time, right? What I will say is, I think the considerations are probably the same as in younger adults, but the um, counterfactual becomes a lot more serious. So the risks of COVID nineteen infection in older adults are could be much more serious, and so it becomes much more important, I think, to try to prevent um, or decrease susceptibility to COVID nineteen infection. And so one of the first papers that came out from the Secure IBD cohort, Millie, that you were involved with was very helpful in my clinical practice because it essentially showed that corticosteroids and mesalamine were actually the two medications that were associated with the highest risk of COVID-19 infection and not the anti-TNF agents. And maybe combination therapy is associated with a slightly increased risk for COVID-19 infection. But you know, the flip side is I think poorly controlled inflammation is also associated with susceptibility for serious infections. And so if combination therapy is what they need to really keep their Disease and systemic inflammation in check. Um, it's probably worth doing as well. So the pandemic really highlighted to us the importance of being as steroids bearing as possible. Even though we sort of think of it as a you know a quick six week or eight week or twelve week whatever taper and then we're done. I think any amount of corticosteroid exposure could. You know, certainly be dangerous, and especially the doses that we use in, in IBD, those doses of prednisone over 20 milligrams pretty often. Um, so those are the biggest considerations, I would say. I think there's a, a big um, push to try to get disease under control effectively and not allow for a ton of systemic circulating inflammation that you're not adequately addressing with milder, quote-unquote, safer therapies.
0: Great point. Uh, no, and I and I totally agree. And then obviously, optimizing vaccination strategies as much as we can from a prevention perspective. But yeah, we got to yeah, treat the disease, not try to be, you know, treating the inflammation will help improve outcomes. Yeah, well, I definitely agree. I do to-
1: think, I'm sorry, just sorry to interrupt, I guess, but I will say, I do, I do think it's a gastroenterologist role, as you know, Millie, to talk okay. about vaccines. And so, you know, I've, we've been doing that. And this just gets added to the long list of things we talk about in terms of vaccinations.
0: Very fair point. Let me turn it over to Ray um, for additional questions.
2: Thanks, Millie. I just wanna remind our listeners that um, IBD Drive Time is sponsored by Advances in IBD and the Gastroenterology Learning Network. And speaking of Advances in IBD, the first in-person regional course in 2023 will be in my home city, Baltimore, March 31st and April 1st. And Millie and I will both be speakers So we hope to have you register and see you there. Barthia, I just wanted to follow up about um, drug treatment. And and I say things slightly differently to patients when I'm I'm doing the risk-benefit discussion. When I get to the end and their eyes are glossed over and they look super afraid of the therapies I may have talked about, uh, I remind them that nothing that I can give them is worse than poorly controlled disease or steroids. And somehow patients and even some outside providers still feel that steroids are safe, and, and we know that they're not. Now, having said that, what about jack inhibitors in your older patients? Are you a little more cautious with jack inhibitors based on the oral surveillance study in rheumatoid arthritis?
1: The answer should be yes. Um, but in reality, you know, if you look at the inclusion criteria for patients in the oral surveillance trial, it's patients who are 50 years and older, so really quite a young older population um, with one additional risk factor for cardiovascular disease, right? So that's actually not the majority of older patients. Um, so there's many people that we see in clinic routinely who might be, you know, 70 or I have a 77 year old um, on a, a jack inhibitor because her only comorbidity is depression. Um, she's, you know, not at all multimorbid. And so uh, I think it's just very important to recognize the inclusion criteria. So, but I do talk about it. And, you know, I do say that there's potentially a may be a signal for um, increased risk of pretty significant uh, serious events. Uh, That being said, I mean, you're not starting a JAK inhibitor de novo, right? It's usually the patient that has, you know, failed a TNF or not failed, but, you know, has been through a TNF without a good response and, you know, probably another biologic or two, um, sometimes five uh, without a good response. And, you know, for that, patient, the counterfactual then is surgery. Um, and a colectomy and major abdominal surgery comes with risks as well, including cardiovascular risks from, you know, sedation and the procedure itself. So, you know, nothing is really risk-free. And I think people understand that when you have that conversation in depth, they really like the way you phrase it. I mean, nothing we can do to them is really as bad as just continuous prednisone, right? So if you, you know, we don't have a head to head of prednisone and a jack inhibitor, but prednisone has increased risk for venous thromboembolism. And infections, including herpes zoster. Um, So it's not that we haven't done these things to our older patients with other medications uh, for IBD in the past.
2: I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, So something I know you're super interested in, you talked about multiple comorbidities, but the concept of frailty and really not looking at chronological age, but looking sort of at this concept of frailty in patients. Do you want to talk to listeners a little bit about that?
1: Sure, thanks. Um, So, you know, frailty is a pretty poorly defined term on the whole. But the thought is that it's maybe a, a surrogate for biologic reserve or kind of your ability to bounce back from a stressor as you get older. And, it, and inherently, it's an aging related concept. And there's a couple of different ways of, of defining frailty. There's probably many different ways of defining frailty, but sort of under two leading conceptual models. One is sort of an accumulation of deficits or things that can happen to you. And um, another is a phenotype of things like fatigue and unintentional weight loss. Um, but the concept is that frailty is inherently an. Inflammatory condition at older ages, and so there seems to be a lot of overlap between frailty and IBD, even in younger adults. And so I'm interested in thinking about if that's a construct that could be applicable to older adults with IBD as sort of a surrogate of the eyeball test, right? A more objective way of um, looking at a person, and instead of just deciding that you know they can't tolerate this or that uh, you know they're very robust, if there's kind of a more objective measure of doing this. So there's been kind of a proliferation of papers looking at frailty retrospectively in IBD. And they all kind of show that, you know, frailty is, uh, or it, is a marker for kind of adverse events or is maybe one other predictor of adverse events in in older adults, sort of like chronologic age can be and comorbidities can be. But what's important to tease out is, you know, what of these frailty factors is really pertinent to patients with IBD. And so that's what we're trying to do prospectively um, with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation funded cohort, the longitudinal cohort of older individuals with Crohn's and colitis. So stay tuned for those results, um, hopefully sometime soon.
2: I'm just going to say my frailty index is very subjective. It's just the eyeball test and you look frail or you don't look frail, regardless of age. And I don't think we have an IBD-specific frailty measure yet, although you're going to probably develop one. Um, There are some objective things that providers can put on a checklist to to identify a, a more frail individual.
0: So before she answers, let me comment because we're doing, we're a site for this logic study that she's doing. And one of the questions is, is what I think the frailty is as the doctor, like your eyeball test, right? And then there's like objective things like a walk test. And I am wrong like most of the time. So I think that this is something that we may not have the right training to assess. Is that fair, Parthi? Like, I mean-
1: You, me, and everyone else, Millie. um, But I think, you know, and I don't know that wrong is necessarily, I'm not saying this just to defend myself, but um, is, is necessarily the term. I think it just kind of shows that maybe the accumulation of deficits, which is what that eyeball test is really, you know, kind of measured against, is maybe not the best way of looking at frailty in our older patients with IBD. And so maybe it's something else and maybe it's not the the whole frailty phenotype, but a component of that frailty phenotype that's maybe most tied to their biologic reserve. And so in other conditions, you know, they have what Ray was talking about, this sort of tailored frailty assessment. And that's, you know, maybe what we do need to get to. Alternatively, it could be, you know, completely irrelevant. So anytime you go into research, right, you have to be willing to accept the null hypothesis. So I'm still willing to keep an open mind. I'm not saying that frailty is the be-all and end-all. But I think the idea is really just to look for a measure beyond chronologic age. Because again, I mean, and you don't even need to be a physician to know this, but not every. Single Sixty-year-old is the same, and not every seventy-year-old is the same, right? So we have the eighty-nine-year-old marathon runners, and then we have the, you know, fifty-year-old patients that really look like they probably don't have ten years of life left. And so, uh, just trying to find a way of objectifying that because having a, a the eyeball test is is a very subjective measure and and not as uniform is what we're trying to get to with uh, these frailty studies.
2: And you know, this another topic that comes up, Arthi, and, and as um... I'm not gonna say Millie's getting older, but as I've gotten older, my patients are aging with me. But I just saw uh, one of my favorite patients today, who's 73, had a surveillance exam last year, had a tubular adenoma, small one removed from the right colon, and he's due for surveillance. He'll be about 74 or 75 for his next exam. So when do you stop? I mean, do we put just a number on it? What I've been doing is just trying to get a sense Are they likely going to be alive for 10 years? And if so, I think ongoing surveillance is reasonable. I have the uncomfortable conversation. Do you want to know if you have pre-cancer or cancer? Are you going to do anything about it? It's sort of an awkward conversation, but it has to happen. So how do you approach that?
1: That, that's a great question. I would say potentially similarly in the in the absence of data, right? So we don't really know exactly when to stop. And I would say that the you know, sort of when to stop for routine colon cancer surveillance is probably a little bit up for discussion as well. Um, but what I do also tell my patients is sometimes it's not just the procedure, but it's the prep for the procedure that can actually be pretty difficult to tolerate. So for a full colonoscopy, especially a surveillance exam, you want a very good prep. I've had a number of patients in their 80s who've prepped for the colonoscopy, but, you know, fell running to the bathroom, then had a hip fracture, then ended up in the hospital, then got a DVT. And another patient last week that showed up who was 82 for a screening exam, very robust, robust gentleman, um, showed up for her colonoscopy and started having pretty significant SVT in the pre-op bay, got hypotensive, probably from dehydration, right? So even though we were trying to aggressively rehydrate him we weren't about to give him sedation for a colonoscopy. So it's not just an in, in electrolyte imbalance, this can happen at, um, ease, more easily at older ages. So it's not just the procedure, which is actually a relatively safe procedure if you think about it, but it's more the sedation and the prep for the procedure that I think become factors in that conversation. Um, but I agree with you. I think having that conversation on, you know, is this really worth it? If we find low-grade dysplasia, are you going to get another colonoscopy in six months or 12 months? If we find high-grade dysplasia, do you want a colectomy? Um, and and if, you know, we really, or, you know, another surveillance procedure or another colonoscopy, if it's like a localized lesion that we can do ESD on, like, are you really going to do all of this? And if you're 80 and you sort of just want to say I don't want to do all of this is that unreasonable maybe we do leave you alone so I, I think we're just at the stage right now where it's all so individualized but this is what takes very long conversations in clinic and I don't think it's like a reflexive comeback in two years thing after you know 70 75 or 80.
2: Just to put a plug in for the red journal Jordan Axelrad and I just wrote a short piece on the red red for the red journal on when to stop surveillance and IBD and uh, Jordan Axrad's the lead author on that. So you can if you want to learn more about when when to stop, go to the red journal. It's now been published online. So Barthy, my favorite question, the fun question tell tell the listener something about yourself that they may not know or something maybe even a million I may not know.
1: Okay, that might be the hardest question so far. (laughs) um, So, okay, we'll talk about something more recent, because I think it kind of goes along the topic of aging, you know, the human body starts declining after 35. Did you know this? What I have started doing recently this month is decided to embrace um, winter sports to some degree, no downhill skiing still, but my kids really love ice skating and so I started taking some ice skating lessons and now can do a spin on the ice. Wow. Um, my daughter can do like waltz, twirls or whatever that is. And so so she's still way better than me, but they really, really like it. And so I thought that, you know, it's a good experience for them to see me struggling at something like struggling to stand up on the ice while they're just like jetting around. Um, and it's a good thing to start embracing the winter and start learning new things as, as I get older.
2: <laughs> How long did it take you to learn, Barthy? I would look like Rocky Balboa I'm in the movie Rocky, like trying to ice skate. And I think Millie had a bad ice skating experience.
1: <laughs> I should clarify, I am not an ice skater. Like, I, I don't know that I'm all done. I had four lessons in January so far. I can stand up on the ice. I can go around the rink. I can spin a little bit, not too fast. That's pretty impressive. I <laughs> do a bunny uh, yeah. hop and that's that. So by no means, I just, I can survive on the ice without getting a hip fracture while my two kids are on the ice. That was the goal. And Great. so far that's, that's there.
2: <laughs> Marthy, this has been uh, wonderful. We're lucky to have you. You're one of the world's experts on frailty and IBD, and hopefully you'll join us again in the future.
1: Thank you so much, Ray. That was so flattering. <laughs> Thanks for having me, both of you.